Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. Today is Sunday, March the 5th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. Uh, This episode uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on yet another train derailment in the state of Ohio uh, just weeks after the initial disaster took place in East Palestine. South Africa is the leading country on the continent in its contributions of assistance to earthquake hit Turkey and Syria. We'll have details on that as well. A Tunisian filmmaker uh, has won the annual FESPACO Award in Burkina Faso in West Africa. And Burundi is deploying peacekeeping troops to the eastern regions of the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on International Women's History Month with a re-examination of the life, times, and contributions of Mary Eliza Church Terrell. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and we'll take our musical interlude in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia uh, with the music of E.J. Gayu Shababa, uh, better known as Gigi. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Yeah, oh, man, no. 
of our program uh, for Sunday, uh, March 5th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard the music uh, of Gigi uh, from the Horn of Africa State of Ethiopia, a compilation uh, of uh, her tracks. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines 
In today's uh, Pan-African Newswire, authorities in the United States state of Ohio were keen to reassure the public after the second train derailment in the region just this month. Officials in the U.S. uh, state of Ohio informed the public there was no safety risk to public health following the latest derailment of a Norfolk Southern cargo train between Dayton and Columbus. It is the second time the company's freight trains have derailed in the state in the last month. Uh, Roughly 20 of the 212 cars on the southbound train derailed at 4.45 p.m. local time Saturday near Business Park in Springfield Township. The accident site is near the Clark County Fairgrounds and is approximately 46 miles or 74 kilometers west of Columbus the capital of the state of Ohio. The residents who live within 1,000 feet of the site were ordered to shelter in place as firefighters and a county hazardous materials team was deployed in the area as a precaution. Uh, By early Sunday, officials said the threat of the public was nil and there was, quote, no indication of any injuries, unquote. And in other news uh, taking place, South African non-governmental organizations have so far provided in-kind aid amounting to approximately $1.2 million for those affected by the Karamanmatis-based earthquakes that occurred on February the 6th, extending its hand of friendship to Turkey from at least 10,000 kilometers away. The Republic of South Africa has become one of the countries sending the highest number of aid materials and search and rescue personnel from the African continent. Consulate General of Turkey in Cape Town, Yunus Emre Institute, Turkish Cultural Center in Johannesburg, Turkish Cooperation and Coordination Agency, Material Office, and White Goods Company, our Selic DeFi's facilities in Durban, which were designated as aid collection centers, were overflowing with aid materials from people in South Africa. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Burkina Faso, Tunisian director Youssef Shabi uh, won the coveted Stallion of Yenega Award uh, yesterday at the biannual Pan-African Festival Festival for his murder mystery, Obwa, Tunis-born Shabi, whose film centers on the investigation into the killing of a caretaker on a construction site at Carthage on the outskirts of his hometown, did not attend the ceremony in Burkina Faso, presided over by military leader Ibrahim Traore. Shabi won out over Burkinabi rival Apolline Traore, who picked up a Consolation Silver Stallion Award for Sira while the bronze went to Kenya's Angela Wame for Shimoni, the stallion of Yanega, the Atalon Droit de Yanega, is awarded for the fictional or documentary feature film judged best to depict African realities. A total of 170 entries have been selected for the Fest Paco Festival in the capital of Ouagadougou, including 15 fiction feature films, in contention for the Onega Golden Stallion Award 
and a prize of around 30000 U.S. dollars. The president of FESPACO's organizing committee, uh, Fidele Amer Tamini, said the festival's 28th edition would embrace the theme of, quote, African cinemas and peace cultures, unquote, in the context of the crisis. The Prime Minister of neighboring Mali, the festival's guest country of honor, which is also grappling with a bloody jihadist insurgency, said culture had, quote, an avant-garde role to play in the peace process, unquote. And uh, finally, Burundi, um, the first part of its troops pledged to deploy to the volatile Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, arrived in Goma. Seven-nation East African community began deploying troops late last year in the eastern DRC, which has been struggling with the rise of militias, including the rebel M23 movement. The fighting in North Kivu province has displaced huge numbers of people and exacerbated regional tensions, with the Democratic Republic of Congo government accusing Rwanda of backing the M23 Claims are denied by Kigali, but supported by the United States and several Western nations. The militia reemerged from dormancy in late 2021, subsequently occupying swaths of territory in North Kivu, including much of the region north of its capital of Goma. The East African community, uh, which has held several meetings to defuse the crisis and call for the withdrawal of the M23 from occupied areas, created a regional force aimed at stabilizing the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. But thousands demonstrated in Goma just last month, accusing the East African community force of passivity in the face of the armed groups. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has uh, has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, March 5th, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
welcome back. And uh, that was the voice of Gertrude Mulroney uh, with the track entitled Honey, Where You Been So Long. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast. We're here broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, today is Sunday, March 5th, uh, 2023. And March is International Women's History Month. And we're going to continue our programming to that effect, we're going to be focusing on the lifetimes and contributions of Mary Eliza Church Terrell. Uh, she was born uh, during the United States Civil War in the state of Tennessee. Uh, she was educated at Oberlin College and also in Europe. Uh, she became a founder of the Women's Club Movement uh, of the late 19th century and early 20th century. Uh, she was active in electoral politics. Uh, as a prolific writer and public speaker, let's listen to um, Allison Parker uh, discuss the lifetimes and contributions of Mary Eliza Church Terrell. Um, Allison Parker uh, is responsible for a political biography of uh, Mary Church Terrell uh, entitled Unceasing Militant. Let's listen uh, to uh, this lecture and discussion. Good evening. Welcome to this evening's event, Mary Church Terrell, the face of African-American women's suffrage activism with Professor Allison Parker. The Frederick Douglass Institute for African and African-American Studies is proud to co-sponsor this event with the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, alongside the Black Alumni Network and the Women's Network in partnership with Susan B. Anthony Center and the Paul J. Burgett Burgett Intercultural Center, and Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. I would also want to say thank you to our captioners and interpreters who are helping ensure that this program is accessible. Before we get started, I wanted to mention some few, a few housekeeping uh, things. Uh, might be helpful Zoom tips for you out there in the virtual world. If you would like to ask a question, please submit it anytime through the Q&A function that is located at the bottom of the screen. Today's event articulates an important part of the study of black life and black struggle, the role of intersectionality, particularly being black and woman in history and our present. As a black feminist thinker and doer, the importance of Mary Church Terrell as a visionary educator and activist within and outside black communities cannot be overstated. I remember reading a speech she delivered in 1908, a significant year for many of you out there, where she stated that, quote, the incomparable Frederick Douglass did many things of which I, as a member of that race, which he served so faithfully, am well proud. But there is nothing he ever did in his long and brilliant career in which I take keener pleasure and greater pride than I do in his ardent advocacy of equal political rights for women and the effective service he rendered to the cause of women's suffrage. Let us never forget that one of the forefathers of black studies was indeed a feminist. And today's lecture and its partnership is a key reminder that this legacy yet remains. Today we will hear more about the esteemed Mary Church Terrell from Professor Allison Parker. 
Allison M. Parker is History Department Chair and Richards Professor of African American, of American History at the University of Delaware. She has, a re- she, has, she has research and teaching interests at the intersections of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and the law in U.S. history. Allison Parker is the author of two books, Articulating Rights, 19th Century American Women on Race, Reform, and the State, and the book from which her talk is drawn today, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. As director of the Frederick Douglass Institute of African and African American Studies, I am glad to introduce Professor Allison Parker. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Let me work on sharing my screen. Okay. Um, Hello. I want to start just by thanking John Cullen, Jessica Guzman-Ray for inviting me, and Caroline Tolbert for organizing this event, along with all the many co-sponsors. What I'd like to talk with you about today is Black women's suffrage activism through the life and activism of the feminist, suffragist, and civil rights activist, Mary Church Terrell. Terrell is best known as the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW, in 1896, and as a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in 1909. She was the first Black woman to graduate with a bachelor's and a master's degree from a predominantly white college, Oberlin College, and she then taught at the nation's best segregated public school, the M Street High School in Washington, D.C., and was then appointed as the first Black woman on its Board of Education. Carol had first publicly expressed her support for women's suffrage at the National Council of Women's Convention in 1891. The first large suffrage meeting, which I attended, was the one in Washington at which women who were interested in the subject were present from all over the world. Among the women sitting on the platform that at that meeting were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Anthony. The presiding officer requested that all those to rise who believed that women should have the franchise. Although the theater was well filled at the time, comparatively few rose. I was among the number who did. I forced myself to stand up, although it was hard for me to do so. In the early 1890s, it required a great deal of courage for a woman publicly to acknowledge before an audience that she believed in suffrage for her sex when she knew the majority did not. Carol's description of the reticence of women who had chosen to attend a major women's convention suggests that a pro-suffrage position in the 1890s was still a daring radical stance. Having attended a convention of the newly merged National American Women Suffrage Association, referred to as NASA, Carol later recalled, When the members of the association were registering their protest against a certain injustice, I arose and said, as a colored woman, I hope this association will include in the resolution the injustices of various kinds of which colored people are the victims. Are you a member of this association? Miss Susan B. Anthony asked. 
No, I am not, I replied, but I thought you might be willing to listen to a plea for justice by an outsider. Then, Miss Anthony invited me to come forward, write out the resolution, which I wished incorporated with the others, and hand it to the Committee on Resolutions, and thus began a delightful, helpful friendship. Anthony subsequently invited Carol to speak to the Political Equality Club in Rochester, and acting on her social equality principles, Anthony hosted her as a guest in her home. Although Terrell was prominent and well-respected, she regularly described her status and the status of all Black women as inescapably circumscribed by race. A white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. Colored men have only one, that of race. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in the country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Terrell explained that African-American women call ourselves colored not because we are narrow and wish to lay special emphasis on the color of our skin, but because the, our peculiar status in this country at the present time seems to demand that we stand by ourselves in the special work for which we have organized. The members of the new National uh, Association of Colored Women came together in 1896 with Mary Church Terrell as their president to defend black womanhood by combating the intersecting forces of sexism and racism. And this is a photo from 1896. And here with the hat with the fruit and the feathers is Mary Church Terrell. Um, over here on the ground is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett and her son, Charles Barnett above, who is in the hands of Alice Dunbar Nelson, a writer and activist in her own right. So leading black club women recognize that the struggle for the vote must extend full citizenship to all African-Americans. Voting rights for black women were always inseparable from questions of black men's disenfranchisement and the broader black freedom struggle. Carol appreciated Anthony's personal warmth, but recognized that Anthony was increasingly ignoring the concerns of African-Americans as she led a narrowing of the white suffrage movement's focus from a broader women's rights platform toward the sole goal of gaining national voting rights for white women. Anthony and white suffragists also disrespected other black suffragists. In 1897, when Adela Hunt Logan, the accomplished lady principal of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, asked Anthony if she could speak at a NASA convention, Anthony replied, I would not on any account bring on our platform a woman who had a 10,000th part of a drop of African blood in her veins who should prove an inferior speaker because it would militate so against the colored race. Ignoring Logan's accomplishments, Anthony assumed that having an ex-slave at the podium would be a humiliating disaster. Unfortunately, Anthony and other white suffrage leaders focused so narrowly on white woman suffrage that they were willing to sacrifice others to achieve their goal. However, disingenuously, 
Anthony claimed that once women got the right to vote, racial justice would prevail, that any means to get women the vote would hasten the demise of both sexism and racism. At the 1898 National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention, a pregnant Mary Church Terrell gave a major speech determined to engage in social justice causes less than two months before her due date. Her husband wrote to her father exclaiming, she is the only colored woman invited to speak. The other speakers will be women such as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frances Willard. After the event, and bursting with pride, he reported back, Molly immortalized herself last night before the Women's Suffrage Convention. She made a magnificent address in admirable style. The theater was filled with the best men and women of the country, and their reception of Molly's speech amounted to an ovation. To emphasize just how well her speech was received, he wrote that several white women went so far as to hug and kiss her when the meeting closed. White and colored people mounted the stage and fairly took her off her feet. It was indeed the greatest triumph of her life. Referring to segregation and racial barriers, he noted, when white women publicly embrace a colored woman, you know the reason for it must be strong. This speech and its reception allowed the Terrell couple to take their minds off of her forced risky pregnancy and focus on their mutual support for women's suffrage. Fortunately, soon after they welcomed their first healthy living child, a daughter named after the black revolutionary era poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Depending upon whether Terrell was addressing a black or a white audience, she shifted her approach to the subject of women's voting rights. For instance, in her 1906 article in The Voice of the Negro, she assumed that many of her readers would be black men, and so paid a pointed tribute to Susan B. Anthony soon after her death. Although Terrell did not condone Anthony's move away from advocating for African-Americans uh, rights after the Civil War, she did point to the Reconstruction era betrayal of the Republican Party of white and black women's goal of universal suffrage as an explanation, but not a justification. Anthony and many other black and white women had been deeply disappointed when abolitionist men had rejected the goal of universal suffrage in favor of the 14th and 15th amendments that enfranchised only black men and not women of either race. In the decades after the Civil War, Susan B. Anthony solicited African-American men's support for women's suffrage without granting reciprocal support for their full citizenship rights. Yet, Terrell nonetheless appreciated what Anthony had done for the cause of women's suffrage. Much later, in 1928, for instance, Terrell was the only African-American woman to have her name inscribed on a plaque unveiled at a commemoration of Anthony and the early women's rights movement. Terrell's education and light skin tone gave her some access to white suffragists. She repeatedly tried to engage in an interracial dialogue by networking with and challenging white suffragists, including in more intimate social settings. For instance, in 1910, she wrote in her diary, I heard Mrs. Ida Harper, the suffragist and biography biographer of Susan B. Anthony, lecture on 
the evolution of the woman suffrage movement in an elegant apartment. Wealthy white women were present. When, as Terrell described it, Mrs. Harper criticized colored men for opposing woman suffrage. Terrell forcefully responded to the assembled women, insisting that white men have done the same. After women of the American Revolution helped to free white men from England's tyranny, these same men placed a yoke upon their necks and taxed them without representation, she reminded them. But later, during the reception, when Harper directly asked Terrell if she felt bad about her critique of Black men, Terrell did not want to shut down her access to these white women and the spaces where she could make these challenges, and so she denied that her feelings had been hurt. Regardless of white women's stance, Black suffragists always simultaneously pursued their own voting rights agenda. In 1908, for example, Carroll and other NACW leaders petitioned for a constitutional amendment to extend the vote to all women and asked for protections for Black men's voting rights. One section resolved that we the members of the Equal Suffrage League, representing the National Association of Colored Women through its suffrage department, in the interest of enfranchisement and taxation with representation, asked to have enacted such legislation as will enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution of our country, the United States of America, throughout all its sections. They wanted black men to be able to vote. After all, any new woman suffrage amendment would be immediately undermined in the South, just as the Reconstruction Amendments had been, unless Congress passed strong and effective enforcement provisions and the relevant government agencies actually enforced them. In addition to public speeches and writings, Mary Church Terrell found more militant and direct suffrage activism appealing. Terrell had long known of and admired the radical techniques employed by British women. For instance, she had recorded in her 1909 diary, I went to hear Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, the militant suffragette, and enjoyed her address immensely. Thus, Terrell eagerly joined in a major direct action in the U.S the 1913 National Votes for Women Parade. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns organized this huge suffrage parade for the National American Women Suffrage Association for March 3, 1913, which was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Alice Paul, a young college-educated Quaker, tried at first to exclude Black women in order to pacify Southern white suffragists. Now, I'm going to take some time to describe what really happened for Black women at this march, because it's something that most historians and popular culture have missed. Most historical and popular cultural accounts correctly describe the anti-lynching activist and suffragist Ida B. Wells Barnett's refusal to march in a segregated delegation at the back of the parade, and rightly celebrate her defiant insertion of herself into an otherwise all-white Illinois delegation. What is less well-known is that this was not a solitary act of one defiant woman. 
From what I had learned of Carol as I was writing my biography, I could not imagine that she had agreed to march segregated at the back, although she must have if Wells Barnett really was the only one who resisted. So I decided to research her participation more carefully. What I found is something that a few Black women's historians had already told us, but that has not been accepted as the real story. Many dozens of Black women, including Terrell, marched all throughout the first suffrage parade in the nation's capital. Those Black suffragists who joined state delegations were at the back, but only because organizers had a carefully choreographed chart for the parade and planned for all the states to assemble there. A Black Chicago newspaper captured the scene that day. The Equal Suffrage Parade was viewed by thousands of people from all parts of the U.S. No color line existed in any part of it. Afro-American women proudly marched right by the side of the white sisters. Carol served as a mentor to Howard University's new Delta Sigma Theta sorority, whose members organized to take action in politics and reform movements. Carol, who wrote the oath for the Deltas and became an honorary lifetime member, negotiated with Alice Paul on their behalf. The members wanted to march together. The key question was whether they would be able to march along with the other contingents of college women. A telegraph from the Suffrage Association to Alice Paul on the day of the parade capitulated to protests from Black women agreeing that Black suffragists could march without restrictions. Carol explained that when some of the white suffragists still objected to having the colored girls of Howard University march in the parade, it was Carol's friend, the lawyer and suffragist Inez Mulholland, who insisted that they be given a place with the pupils of the other school. Dressed in their caps and gowns, the 25 Howard University Deltas marched alongside the other college delegations, not at the back. Mary Beard, the feminist and progressive U.S. historian, invited Terrell and other NACW members to stride alongside the New York City Women's Suffrage Party, which they did. Black women even carried the state banner for New York and Michigan. As, Cliff, as Carrie Clifford's recounted in the NAACP's The Crisis, Black suffragists marched as artists, homemakers, trained nurses, teachers, writers, college graduates, and musicians, among others. An editorial by NAACP leader W.B. Du Bois described the politics surrounding the participation of Black suffragists. The Women's Suffrage Party had a hard time settling the status of Negroes in the Washington Parade. Finally, an order went out to segregate them in the parade, but telegrams and protests poured in, and eventually the colored women marched according to their state and occupation without let or hindrance. Du Bois captured the fluidity and chaos of the situation, as well as the resolve of the Black women who organized, protested, and won the capitulation of the white suffragists. If we better understood that Black suffragists collectively fought for and won the right to participate throughout, we would have a different story to tell of Black women's pivotal role in the suffrage movement. Despite their differences, 
Carroll continued to admire Alice Paul's use of direct action. During World War I, she and her daughter Phyllis, then in her late 20s, were among only a few Black women who are documented as having joined the National Women's Party in peacefully picketing in front of the White House. Carrying banners that called for women's voting rights, Terrell willingly risked arrest and violent attacks. The women who picketed were called traitors for protesting the U.S. government policies during wartime, but persisted nonetheless. Um, thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have, including on how this story of women's suffrage fits into the larger biography of Mary Church Terrell. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor Parker. That was wonderful and a very uh, complex, actually, set of uh, conversations around Mary Church Terrell. Um, I'm from Chicago, so we say Terrell. I've, I've known about it since second grade, which is funny, uh, but uh, I think you all say Terrell. Which I, I well, get it. Her, fa her family told me it's Terrell, so Terrell. I had to, oh, I had so to say my... Terrell. So, so that's okay. So that's yeah. even that's that's a southern uh, way of saying it as well. Well, if you would exactly. like to ask questions, we are here. Uh, Professor Parker is here to take questions from the audience. We really want you to ask any questions that might be on your mind. Um, you know, I can throw out one if I don't see any, but I definitely uh, think this is a great opportunity uh, to have some Q and A before uh, the panel that we're having shortly thereafter. I know you're out there thinking, so I'll, I'll just ask a, a very quick question. Um, who would you say are some of the interlocutors of uh, Mary Church Terrell? <laughs> I'm trying, right? Um, you know, who would you say were her, her main interlocutors and those folks who had her? Because I often think about who had her political ear, right? Who was in her ear uh, beyond Susan B. Anthony and those folks? But, like, who were the, the folks who she was in conversation with? Um, she was in conversation with a lot of other Black women who are associated with a kind of early intersectional politics and feminism as well. She was um, a classmate of Anna Julia Cooper, who was another Black intellectual, um, also went to Oberlin College, um, as well as Ida Gibbs Hunt, who was from another very uh, prestigious African-American family and spent time with her husband, who was an ambassador um, and served abroad. And um, then as time grew on, she met people like um, Mary McLeod Bethune and um, Margaret Murray Washington and a whole variety of other women. Since she lived, she was born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee, and then um, that was during the Civil War, so she was only enslaved for two years, and then um, lived in Memphis until she went to school um, as a young girl in the North because her parents wanted her to get a better education, and they had set up their own uh, businesses, so were able to pay for her to get an education. And then um, she lived until 1954, the same year as Brown v. Board of Education. And so this incredibly long life means that she 
was um, friends with and collaborated with so many different kinds of activists because she was literally active for 60 years. So the part that I talked about, I know, so the part that I talked about today is the tedious part of her story, but it's a very interesting part and it is the part that connects the most with uh, Rochester and uh, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. She met Frederick Douglass at an inaugural ball um, for Harrison um, in the 1870s. And then um, when she moved to Washington, D.C., they became friends and collaborators, and he was her mentor. So they ended up um, inviting Ida B. Wells to come and um, give talks on anti-lynching right after uh, the murder of Thomas Moss and their other friends and collaborators in Memphis. Um, And that was in 1892, 1893. So she only um, worked with him for the last few years of his life since Frederick Douglass died in 1895. But um, she was, she was the one who founded um, Frederick Douglass Day, the first day um, to really commemorate him in a public school system. And she did it because as the quote that you had at the beginning said, he, um, was somebody who supported suffrage from early on. And she really uh, appreciated that he was both, he was an intersectional activist yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of questions out here for you. So look, I'm, I'm glad we, we primed. Okay. Um, so one of the questions out here uh, is, did Terrell have a relationship with the League of Women Voters? Um, yeah, she did. I, uh, the League of Women Voters, was not entirely open to black women early on. And um, they've actually taken some responsibility for that more recently and have looked more introspectively at their past. So she wasn't able to fully engage with them, um, although she would meet their members because their members were also members of other organizations that she was involved in. She was an active Republican because like almost all black women until the 1930s and the New Deal, they were Republicans as in the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. So if we think about it that way, that's where that came from. Beautiful. So what did Terrell's suffrage activism look like post the 19th Amendment? So after the 19th Amendment, she wanted to participate in the National Women's Party that Alice Paul had, in spite of the fact that she knew, or maybe because she knew, that Alice Paul was not going to take uh, Black women's concerns seriously unless they inserted themselves in these organizations. So even as they always had their own organizations, they believed strongly in the need to have um, organizations that were... um, they needed to join white women whenever they could. Um, So she asked Alice Paul if the National Association of Colored Women could be um, a member of the National Women's Party. And Alice Paul said no, because she claimed that it was not a party that or a group that focused on gender and feminism, but on race. So she was completely unable to see intersectionality. And so um, Alice Paul and Terrell and several other women met together and had this kind of heated exchange. And Terrell was allowed to come as a visiting delegate to talk at the um, 
1921 convention, and she was a, a lifelong member of the National Women's Party, but she was never able to break through Alice Paul's very singular approach to white women's equality. Yeah, that, that's really, really helpful. A um, couple of more questions out here. Uh, we have about five more minutes, so it's great. Um, so this is a, a, a big question. Maybe I'll, I'll couple them together um, in terms of thinking, how did Carol and others balance activism, careers, and family life? Like what support systems did they have, networks? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, one thing that I tried to allude to uh, by mentioning that her pregnancy that was successful was her fourth, is that she had had a series of tragic um, situations with late miscarriages, a stillbirth, and then a baby who lived for two days, but then died in a segregated DC hospital with an improvised incubator. And she always believed that racism was involved. So kind of like Serena Williams, here you have one of the most elite um, and fairly well-off white uh, black woman of her day, um, who is unable to get good maternity care, right? So, so she really believed and felt the need to fight for black women's health and welfare and the health and welfare of their families. So when she became the president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1896, you know, she still hadn't had a successful pregnancy. And um, this was incredibly important to her. So she founded the first kindergartens for black children and helped um, create day nurseries, but also advocated for black women to become nurses and doctors because she knew what now scientists say is true, that black doctors and nurses provide better care because they're invested in the health of black women. So to do all of this work, and once she had her own baby, her mother retired from her career as a a hair salon owner and came down um, from New York uh, where she was living to Washington, D.C. to help be um, a child care provider for their child. And she had a very supportive husband who was equally interesting, Robert uh, H. Terrell, who had been enslaved for the first seven years of his life, but ended up graduating from Harvard University and getting a law degree from Howard University and becoming the first municipal court judge in Washington, D.C., who was black. So they were a power couple, and she could not have done what she did without his support because um, it was she was really stepping outside of the boundaries of what um, black and white women were expected to be doing. So she, he did receive pressure, but he was very supportive of her career. Great. Thank you so much. There's one last question pressing there that I'm sure a lot of folks are asking, and uh, one uh, contributor asked this question, which was, what would you say is the legacy of Mary Church Terrell today? Is it Stacey Abrams? I mean, is it Michelle Obama? Like, where do we find, where do you position uh, the legacy? Um, Both of those women would be a good place to start, but also Kamala Harris, because one of the things that um, she was really interested in is Terrell was a political being. And she said if she had lived at a different time, she would have wanted to be a senator. And truthfully, I think she would have wanted to be president. Um, but she was unable to run. And so the, the best thing that she could find was she ended up working on a 
white woman's campaign, the, one of the first white women to um, win a primary, um, but she didn't win the election, uh, Ruth Hannah McCormick in 1930. Um, and it took another, I think, 30 30 years for a white woman to win and 60 years for a black woman to win into the Senate. Um, so she was way before her time. But um, Kamala Harris in her um, acceptance speech actually mentioned um, Mary Church Terrell as one of her predecessors who had paved the way for her. So I'd like to make that claim as somebody who we could look to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us to answer these wonderful questions. And thank the audience for uh, these great questions and really being engaged. Uh, we now are going to move to our panel discussion. And so I am going to introduce my wonderful colleague, June Wan, who is the director of the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, and also an associate professor of German. My esteemed colleague, June, how are you? Hi, thanks very much. Um, thanks, Jeffrey, and thank you, Allison, for sharing um, your important and fascinating work. Uh, so Allison will be joined by our esteemed panelists uh, to talk more about the important role Black women have played in changing the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality throughout the United States, the challenges and repercussions they encounter, and the profound resilience they possess in the face of adversity. Um, all in 20 minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, so clearly we're not going to be able to discuss everything, but um, so let me start by um, introducing the panelists, and then I will essentially take a step back and let them speak with each other. Um, but you, the audience is also welcome to ask questions, and I will try to weave them into the conversation. Um, so the first panelist I'm going to introduce is Ananda Benbo, she, uh, class of 2015, who is using her passion for language and issues in education to host the Black Language podcast, featuring conversations about Black people and their languages. Um, Ananda, if you could turn on your camera, please. Thank you. Um, the next panelist is Tiffany Taylor Smith, class of 1991, a doctoral candidate and assistant vice president for diversity and inclusion at the University of Dayton and co-chair of the University of Rochester's Women's Network. Welcome. And the last panelist is Brianna Theobald, an assistant professor of history here at the University of Rochester. Uh, she teaches classes on U.S. women's history and the history of Native America. Um, so maybe just to start off, um, we can have, I'll just throw out a general question to start the conversation. Uh, thinking about sort of stories like that, that of Mary Church Terrell, um, how, what role is, does the telling of these stories and of learning about people like Mary Church Terrell have for our current day, um, and maybe even sort of more personally for you as scholars, as activists? Would anyone like to start? <laughs> well, well, I'll take it. I, I think as, as a scholar and as a practitioner, even just hearing um, the work and research that Allison has done, which, thank you, Allison, I, part of it is like, okay, what, what intrigued you about this project? But that's a sidebar. Um, I, I want to thank you for your research and your work and sharing of that. And I think for me, as a practitioner in diversity, equity, and inclusion, even in our current climate, it is so important that we learn these stories. I mean, 
I continue, and I, I graduated from the university in 1991. I'm a mother of three daughters, um, and I still struggle. And and someone who is pursuing a doctor degree, the stories that were not taught to me um, as as a as a high school student, as an elementary student, as a um, someone pursuing her bachelor's degree, unless I took specific courses, and someone who's earned a master's degree and is now pursuing her PhD. It is continuing to be clear to all many who choose to acknowledge there are a lot of stories that have been omitted from U.S. history um, in so many ways. And, and, and we're at this moment of truth, this, this time of somewhat reconciliation, where we have an opportunity, particularly those who are in education, to really look at what are we missing. Um, and, and to benefit from, from Allison's work around how do we understand the story and what were the complexities that were involved in the experiences that she had um, in trying to move the, to move the movement, if you will, um, for women's suffrage and engage black women. And, and, you know, I, I, I often wonder too, as, as a, as a light skinned black woman, how that influenced her ability to be in these spaces. As a light-skinned black woman, I, I find myself often puzzled by that as well, the way in which I'm received in different spaces and how that impacts my ability to ally, champion, or be an accomplice for others who are not in those spaces. Yeah, um, to add, um, I feel like as a young black woman, it's um, it's been really important for me to know that since enslavement and perhaps you know, beyond, Black women have always had an analysis of not just race, but where race and gender intersect. Um, and I think that that means that for Black people of multiple identities, sexual orientation, ability, class, that there's always been an analysis, you know, an intersectional analysis. Um, and so, sorry, I took some notes on this, and so I just want to make sure I'm getting everything, because I like the way I put it. Um, and so, oh, yeah, and so it means that, like, when current generations, like myself, are silenced um, or told that we're too sensitive, right, or told that we're making things up, like we're making up terms and we're making up, you know, uh, identities, where it's like, one, all terms and identities are, to some, you know, are, are made up, but two, it's like that just comes from complete ignorance. Um, it comes from lives meant to derail us when we know that we have always existed, right? This work has always existed. And so I think when we hear stories like that, um, and, uh, I think for those of us who are doing work, right, with our communities, it's really empowering, right, to know that, you know, black feminism did not start in the 70s, like will often be told to us, right? And that, in fact, you know, we've always been doing this work when I think about black women, um, doing birth work during enslavement, right? And so, like, we've always been intersectional about our practices. And so I think for me, when I think about these stories and think about my day-to-day -day work, in addition to the podcast, I also work at a high school. It's about how am I creating an environment um, that's safe for my students, um, that's safe for students with, you know, um, with multiple identities, and how am I, one, keeping up with the times and knowing how the world is changing, right, so I can be a better advocate for them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's a, gr a great and such an important point to think about these long legacies of, of 
black women as um, black women and other women of color. So my own research is in um, indigenous women, Native American women, but um, so black women and women of color as theorists, right? Doing, doing um, in, in various ways and through experience and so many other things, right? Doing really important theory, um, have this, these legacies of, of important um, um, intersectional feminist theory. And then the other thing that I was thinking of is, um, you know, I think with this, there's this way to, to get back into to Tiffany's point about how histories are told or not told, right? I, I think that there's this way in which sometimes when we think about um, activist histories, that the the activists can sort of, um, you know, it's like they're in the distant past, right? Um, and their lives are somehow just kind of decontextual. I mean, they are like activists, right? And so there's, we get this kind of pub, their public lives, some of their public work. And I think what, what, what I was thinking about that's really helpful about reading a biography like this, that really gets at the texture of um, Terrell's, Terrell's life, right? As a, as a, um, a full person who's, struggling, right, going through all of these real struggles alongside her work, as, you know, so many people are, like, that's the reality, right, of, mm-hmm. of activist work and these histories of activist work. And there's a way, in which, as I was, as I was reading it, there is a way in which I think that looking at one person's life like that in such complexity and depth, and, and, and situating her in these, this evolving historical context can also serve to remind us in this moment, um, that we are also historical actors, right, in ways that I think sometimes, um, at least at the, the kind of student level, we can almost forget, right, that, that we study history in the past, these women's stories, um, but you think of so many of the issues, right, that she was, that it, with which Terrell engaged, um, maternal, uh, maternal health, right, and healthcare, um, educational curriculum, you know, 1619 project, right? How do we understand our histories? Um, uh, police brutality, um, voting rights, right? Um, I mean, so many of these historical um, issues are issues that folks are, of course, struggling with today. And I, I think it's useful to remember that we are historical actors in a historical moment that future generations and future scholars, right, will be analyzing as well. Yeah, I mean, you all raised such really interesting points. And I do think that when you look at the life of one Black woman in the past, we can learn a lot from that. And one thing that I think is important is this idea of taking people out of one particular moment in their life or one particular action that they're best known for. Um, Like in her case, she's best known as the president of the National Association of Colored Women. But that was actually like the one of her earliest acts. And then she had decades and decades of activism after that. And just like Rosa Parks is, is pretty much known for sitting on the bus, but she was an activist for many decades before that happened. And um, people aren't aware of her big involvement in the NAACP, although there's been a lot of work now, especially through uh, biographies that have been coming out recently that have tried to help to kind of unpack some of that. And in the case of Terrell, going back to what Tiffany was talking about with her light skin color and privilege and how that played a part, 
for her in getting access to white communities. She was aware of that, and she used it to her advantage whenever she could. One of the things that she regularly did is go speak to governors about getting pardons or other ways to try to end death sentences to black women who were poor and uneducated and very dark-skinned usually and who were in prison. Um, Some of them were even teenagers um, with death sentences. And then after she would meet with the governor in the state, whether it was Virginia or whether it was um, uh, Georgia or other places, she would then go and get access to the women in prison and meet them there. So she wasn't an elite in the sense of elitist, that she wouldn't, uh, you know, use her, she used her power as much as she had it to try to gain access to people and help change their lives. So um, she was aware of that and what, but was very conscious about it. And um, she, the term unceasing militant that I used for the title of the book actually comes from a friend and associate of hers, the actor and activist and singer, Paul Robeson, who described her as an unceasing militant in the struggle for black freedom. And so that was his um, obituary, in fact, for her when she died. And it seemed to me that it was a really meaningful thing to talk about her as someone who uh, was unceasing in her militancy, which doesn't mean that she also didn't make compromises or go uh, join these meetings with white women that were, you know, somewhat problematic because she always wanted to be in those spaces to be the voice of dissent. But it does mean that she also worked with communists. And she, um, you know, when the NAACP decided that it didn't want to take on cases of black men accused uh, wrongly of rape, like with the uh, Scottsboro Nine, she worked with the Communist Party to try to get them freed. So um, she was really willing to step out of line, if you want to put it that way, and to do direct action like the picketing um, that she started with um, the National Women's Party in World War I uh, and continued all the way up to the end when she led a successful campaign to desegregate Washington, D.C. in 1953, so before uh, Montgomery, Alabama and before Brown v. Board. Maybe, does anybody have any questions within the panel for each other? I mean, I have some questions as well, but I wanted to give you a chance in case you have something that you would like to ask each other. One of the things I just wanted to, to raise, I think, is, is, is evident in the way that which Allison tells the story, and it's so important in what we see today. Regardless of our identities, even embedded in the story, you see other women who there were women who were against her participating because of her her race, but there were also women who advocated and allied and championed for her. And and even in telling the story, Allison, that you share with us, had those women not stepped up, there were certain ways in which she would have been blocked from being able to accomplish what she was able to do. And and for me, that raises the question. Given our positionality, regardless of our identity, how we advocate for others, what, whether they be LGBTQ+, um, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander identities, um, as well as indigenous identities, like how, regardless of our own, how we advocate, ally, and champion um, and accomplice in many ways, 
for identities that we don't belong to, how important that is. And I think that that's very transparent in your story that there were those women um, and some men who were willing to say she needs to be a part of this. We need to have them in this space engaging in the suffrage movement. Well, and I would just add to that, which I think is a really important point, not maybe regardless of, but also very much because of, right? I mean, I think that the ways we're not something is also important. Um, and I'm saying this as a Korean American who does German Jewish studies, right? Um, the, the ways in which I'm not German and Jewish are very much about me being Korean American. And so I think um, when we think about allyship, it is also important to think about not only sort of what the, what the positions are that we're looking at, but what, where we're coming, where we're positioned within those things, right? Yeah, and one of the things that you make me think about is this question of being willing to be uncomfortable and to have difficult conversations and to put yourself in with people who are different from you and learn and listen and think about what they're saying and then try to figure out um, how you want to interact with that. And Terrell did that, but I think a lot of contemporary women have to do the same kind of thing with each other and with others to make this work. And it's the whole life balance piece for me, too. I mean, I, I didn't know the story about her um, four miscarriage, well, three, and then the fourth birth of her child. Like, that's the, the multiple dualities that we carry as women. We're not just these, these workers, these advocates, these social justice champions. We also have personal lives. And really thinking about, I think that was the piece for me, just understanding the, the, the significance of that that that's not separate. Like that is a part of who she is. She was living and thankfully uh, through the support of her partner was really able to continue to do the work that she did. So again, that's one of those ones where I appreciate that being a part of the story as well. Um, I would, in thinking about Tiffany and Tiffany's kind of comments about allyship and, um, and really coalition building too, right? And how we think about coalitions and in thinking about what, what June said as well, um, so a lot of in my research and so my kind of intellectual and some political commitments, right, I'm very interested in, in reproductive justice, which is um, a term coined by black feminists in the 1990s um, but that stems out of, of um, histories of, of um, reproductive oppression and also uh, long histories um, uh, of, of reproductive activism, right, by, uh, by black women and indigenous women and women of color. Um, and one of the things in, in that literature that I've really noticed as a theme is, um, cause coalitions have been so important to, to this reproductive justice work. Um, it is a movement kind of based on, on coalition building. And they, they've been, they talk about, um, this idea of solidarity through difference. Right. So that that actually like the, the process to, to kind of June's point of, of forming these coalitions actually requires some understanding in, in at least many of the situations in which they're talking about of understanding our differences, too. And I think so one of the ways that that becomes really important is actually understanding the differences in terms of, um, say, uh, indigenous women's relationship right to the state right and to their tribal nation and that their goals might be somewhat different um but that there's kind of room for ground if we understand each other and i think in the work that's come out on on suffrage um 
the historical work that's come out in the last couple of years, right, to, to commemorate um, the centennial, I think that there's been a lot of emphasis on the ways in which these different coalitions can actually help to expand the way we even think historically about suffrage, right? For for many Black women, it was con- it was connected to racial justice. It was a, a tool, right, for racial justice. Particularly, lynching was important for for many Native women. Um, it um, it was it had a lot to do with indigenous with tribal sovereignty, right, and indigenous cultures. For many Hispanic women, I'm drawing on Kathleen Cahill's work here. For many Hispanic speaking Spanish speaking women in the Southwest, right, it was tied to and was a tool for language. And so I think that like when we know all of that. Um, thinking about these coalitions that developed are actually in some ways all the more impressive and important to understand, right? Because that we don't get that story if we're just thinking about what, um, you know, what Rochester's own Sue B, right? How she was conceptualizing all this and that, that, that makes it harder to understand, um, the, the, the real coalitions that developed at least at particular points. I mean, what do you all think then about, I was just coming back to where we started this conversation to think about sort of the ways in which we learn these stories, right? And I'm thinking about the ways in which there's sort of, at least in my educational experience, there was sort of African-American history, Asian-American history, right? And then white history was sort of the regular history, right? And so that these things are so separated that I think the reason why it's often surprising to learn about these coalitions is because of the way that we're taught these things or the way that we're under, we're sort of taught or we're trained to sort of categorize these things as this is this type of history or women's history more generally, right? That women's history is separated from sort of history, which is, you know, male history then, right? So um, I don't know exactly what the question here is. I guess it would just be, you know, what your thoughts are about um, ways in which you've seen sort of movements against this or ways to sort of undermine this particular sort of categorization. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I found useful about doing a biography of a black woman who lived from 1863 to 1954 is that it was a way to write a different story of American history. And by using her as somebody who I could talk about, there's a whole section on various aspects of her political transformation um, as African-Americans in general move into the Democratic Party and then also the um, smearing of all civil rights activists as communists as you move toward um, World War II and beyond in the Cold War era. And so just every part of this one person's life is also just a way to kind of reframe the history and to think more broadly and in a longer a period of time about what civil rights activism looks like. The civil rights movement often is seen as starting in the 40s or 50s, but if you think about a longer, and other historians have been trying to talk about, you know, how long is the civil rights movement and where, how far back can we take it? Um, but if you're thinking about it as a black freedom struggle, uh, you can take it pretty far back. And these women and men in coalition are absolutely doing that. Um, but her work intersects with all kinds of other 
groups, and she's a pacifist and works with um, the International Women's League for uh, Women's Peace and Freedom and um, travels abroad and actually speaks five languages and is fluent in, you know, German and um, French and Italian and then teaches Latin and Greek. Um, and so she's somebody who has this incredible uh, facility with language and is the only black woman who appears as a representative and speaks at several so-called international women's conferences in Europe in the early 20th century. And she pointed out that it was um, a very bizarre thing to be the only woman of color in a so-called international conference. Um, but what that, I guess, really meant is that it was um, a European and American women's conference, right? So, so she tried to insert and think about how, how can I stand in and be the voice for all of these people who aren't here? Um, so that kind of liminality and the, the sense that she, um, could try to play that role is, is an interesting one. But, but I do think these coalitions are really important. Well, and this question of language too, right? I mean, um, this is, I'm sort of directing this towards Ananza, um, but this question of language and about sort of the ways in which, um, since you are doing a black language podcast as well, I mean, thinking about language and um, the ability to use language to sort of mobilize or the ability to use language to one's advantage, right? And um, so if you could say maybe something about that as well. Yeah, um, I definitely think of it in kind of like two parts. Um, they're not uh, separated, um, but one is like, so Professor Parker just mentioned all the languages that Mary Church Terrell just, uh, spoke, right? And I'm definitely of the camp that used to say Mary Church Terrell. Um, so happy to learn something new today. Um, right, but it's about um, speaking languages across um, across our communities, right? And so, um, if I'm thinking specifically about Black women, right, there's Black women all up and down, um, you know, the Americas and throughout the world who speak different languages. And by and large, many people are going to learn how to speak English as an additional language across the world because it is such. Um, well, the United States has made it so it's a useful language because of the oppression that the United States has caused, right? And so, but it really should be our responsibility to learn the languages of the diaspora, right? So learn the languages that are spoken in the Caribbean, um, learn the language, you know, uh, of, of black women in um, in South America and thinking about like the Garifuna communities and all the Creoles we have in the Caribbean and the West African languages and languages across the continent that we have in order to um, Build because the struggle for black liberation, right, is global. And so that's important. And then I also think about it, um, where it's like language is always changing. Um, and it will always change. And that's what it's always done. And so sometimes I laugh at people who are like such sticklers about like, you know, the English language, you know, and it's like, you know, you can't end a sentence with a preposition. It's like, well, people do it all the time. It comes out naturally, you know. Um, and it's funny because many things that people will be sticklers about now would be considered, you know, improper and shamed upon, you know, hundreds of years ago, right? And so language is 
constantly changing. And so um, the movement um, and movement building is really a place where people are so creative and expansive when it comes to thinking about language and we think about new terms that we get. And so when um, young people are pushing the bounds for what language can do, as older people, we really have to let them do that, right? We have to let them explore their identities um, and explore how they connect with each other through language. Um, and um, and we can't police that, right? So we can't, you know, police and tell them how to do what they're doing. We kind of just have to watch them and, like I like to do, learn from them, right? Because what they're really doing is moving us to a space that is more inclusive. It's more gender inclusive, right? Um, when people, when young people are able to speak there are varieties that aren't standardized English. So we think about, I mean, there's so many varieties. Um, and so we think about like African-American language, we think about Chicano English, we think about Appalachian English. Like there's so many different types of Englishes across um, the country and throughout the world. And so when we allow, um, I was going to say students, because that's who I work with, but when we allow young people, um, you know, access and safe spaces to use language comfortably and think about how do they want to use language to represent themselves, I think they build a more inclusive movement or movements. Um, and then I also think about, about it like language accessibility. And so um, can people join the space and participate based on the language that they use? And so having sign language interpreters is important. Having um, interpreters for other languages is also important. And it can't be a situation where it's like, oh, well, you know, nobody who um, needs sign language interpretation signed up. And it's like, no, we have to provide it and people will come um, because that is, you know, historically how people have been excluded. They don't see themselves represented and they don't see their languages spoken. And so when we offer that to people, right, then I think we can start to see that um, community building. Um, we're almost out of time, unfortunately. Um, so I'm going to ask sort of one final question to each of you, um, which is, all of you um, in your role, in various roles, um, and most every one of you has multiple roles, um, are working to change the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality um, by sort of foregrounding the voices of those historically left out of the conversation. Um, and so for those in the audience who are looking to do the same, what advice or sort of last words do you have for this is for, for them? I'll go first. I'll take that. Um, I think the big piece of this is, and we've talked about this in, throughout the theme of this evening, is really being able to listen. Um, I have my story. I have my journey, where I grew up, who I grew up around, where I went to school, what I learned, you know, in my 52 years of life. But it's so important for me to be able to hold my truth but also be able to listen to others and, and to be able to understand that even though their story may be very different than mine, uh, their, their experiences may be very different, that I can still hold my truth and appreciate theirs as well. And then understanding how I can be an ally, a champion, an accomplice for them as well. And it doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. For me, I feel like I kind of just said some of this stuff with language, right? And so how, so like, 
more tangibly, right? So when we're hosting events, when we're, you know, um, having, you know, rallies and, you know, things like that, um, right? Having multiple languages available for people. And, um, I mean, what's really nice is, like, we are in the community. Like, multilingual speakers are in the community, right? And so it's not something where you have to, like, go out and find, you know, in, like, some directory that's, like, you know, in, like, I don't know, something that's just, like, inaccessible. But, like, there are people, you know, on my blog right now who speak tons of languages because I live in New York City. Um, but we do exist everywhere. Um, and, and then the other thing is um, um, a quote kind of spoke to me um, throughout the presentation. Um, Zora Neale Hurston said it, and it was something like, if you are silent about, um, if you're silent about, like, your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Um, and... The first time I heard that quote, I freaked out because I was like, wow. Because I, I was a student when I heard that because um, at the time that I was a student, and actually today's the anniversary that myself and other students from U of R were released from prison in Ferguson, not prison, but were, were released from jail in Ferguson during the Ferguson uprisings um, uh, in 2015. Um, and so, uh, or sorry, 2014. Um, and so... I remember like looking at pictures and images and like kind of seeing everyone's reactions, right? You have some people who are super stoic, you have some people who are really expressive with their face, right? And that's when my friend had said that quote to me. It's like, we have to be loud. We have to make noise. Like, you know, we have to let um, white supremacy, the state, know that like we are not happy. We are not content with our living conditions. And so when I think about, you know, what can we do in our life, um, I think it's speaking up. Um, at moments when, you know, we notice that there's something wrong, right? And it sounds like simple and cheesy, but I feel like it kind of just starts with that, asking people questions. What did you mean when you said that? Um, you know, um, can you explain, you know, what that means? Or, you know, or why would you say that? Or that makes me uncomfortable, right? Because when we let people, um, right, you, you know, use their biases throughout healthcare, throughout education, throughout, you know, the different sectors where black people have to interact. And when we don't check them on what they're doing, um, right, it just allows it to continue. Um, so I actually really hesitate to, um, I mean, I feel like that's like the, the moment, to, to, that's like the closing moment, right? Um, but I, I, so I, I think I would just kind of echo that. Um, and it's also maybe the piece that I might add is to, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, in part because I've been teaching about about a lot of local history and, and black women's activism in Rochester. Um, and so I, I, I guess I'm thinking about this kind of as connected to place, right? And the beauty of this virtual world, right, is that for better or worse, we are, many of us are in different places right now. But um, I, so this is going to be a little bit different depending on where you are. But I mean, I think for those, you know, who are in Rochester, um, I think that, it kind of echoes with what I said before um, about being aware of yourself, like as a historical actor, and that would be, this is touching on, yeah, a lot of, of themes, but so, you know, being aware of um, inequities in our various communities, right, including university communities, um, you know, there is a, a long history of um, black freedom struggle in Rochester that is very much ongoing. And I think it's just important to be uh, very aware of that and understand this as like connected, this long history. And then I would also note we are also on um, Haudenosaunee homelands, right? And specifically the home, homelands of the, the Seneca Nation. Um, that's another piece of this place 
right, and, and understanding these histories that we need to um, listen regarding, right, that we need to pay attention to, and that we, I would suggest, be ready to to speak out about, right, as as Anansa so eloquently said. So I would just leave that with this this kind of place-based piece as well. Yeah, I, I these are all really wonderful words of wisdom. And I guess the only thing that I might add is that I think that the life of Mary Church Terrell and other black women activists really points to the question of persistence and a determination to be militant more than once and to not give up hope if one action or set of actions doesn't work. Um, and, you know, in her case, she did multiple kinds of activism and had meetings with a variety of people like every day of the week, practically. And uh, if one thing didn't work, like if boycotting didn't work, they tried picketing. If picketing didn't work, they tried suing. You know, there's always something. And so um, I think for young people, especially the notion that um, we have one summer uprising of 2020 and the world will change. Um, might be putting too much um, hope and uh, effort, effort placed in one moment or one surge, but to realize that it has to be more sustained and that we have to continue working on these coalitions and on strategies. And that would be what I would take away from it. Well, thank you all so much for this conversation. Um, thank you, Allison. Thank you to the panelists. Um, and thank you to the audience as well. Um, there is going to be a slide, I believe, with upcoming events. <laughs> or I was told there was going to be one. <laughs> um, yeah, there we are. <laughs> there it is. Uh, so please take note of them. And, um, and once again, thank you and good night. Welcome back. And uh, that was... Uh a lecture and uh, panel discussion uh, led by Allison Parker, the biographer of uh, Mary Church Terrell. Uh, the book entitled Unceasing Militant uh, is available in uh, various uh, platforms throughout uh, the world. And this is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, March 5th, uh, 2023. This is International Women's History Month in the United States, and uh, we've been commemorating uh, this fact uh, throughout our programming uh, this weekend. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment.
the voice of uh, Mary Stafford uh, with the track and title, I'm Going to Jazz My Way, a uh, big hit in 1921. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, March 5th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I am Abayomi Azikwe, your host, and our final segment is going to deal uh, with a cultural figure uh, who made a tremendous impact on the scene uh, during the early uh, decades of the 20th century and beyond. Adelaide Louise Hall uh, was born on October 20th of 1901. She lived until November 7th of 1993, a very long and productive uh, 92 years. She was an African-American. Uh, she was based in the United States, later based in the U.K., a uh, jazz singer and entertainer. She had a career that spanned it for 70 years, more than 70 years, from 1921 when she was uh, 20 years old until her death. And she was a major figure in the so-called Harlem Renaissance. Uh, Hall entered the Guinness Book of World Records in 2003. Uh, as the world's most enduring recording artist, having released material over eight consecutive decades, she performed with many uh, artists, such as Art Tatum, who she was responsible for exposing uh, nationally in the United States, Ethel Waters, uh, Josephine Baker, Louis Armstrong, uh, Lena Horne, Cab Calloway, uh, Feta Zawanda, uh, Rudy Valley. Uh, Jules Holland, and many others, Duke Ellington, uh, just to name some, and Fast Waller. Let's listen uh, to an interview uh, with uh, Adelaide Hall as she discusses her early uh, career in the United States. Uh, You've been away a long, long time from performing in New York. You were a star here 50 years ago, and it was a big thing in your life. What does it mean to you coming back well, it all seems a dream, really. I, I can't believe that it's been, dear, what, 50-some-odd years? 20-some-odd, 1928, with Blackbirds. And then before that, a few beautiful musicals before that, Shuffle Along and Chocolate Kitties and, oh, my dear. And I'm, I, now it's, it's as though I'm just floating on air. I'm so happy to be back as a Brooklyn girl. I'm British by marriage. Which you know, and I've been I've been in London since 1938. I just arrived in in London. I arrived in London uh, just before the war. After staying four years in uh, Paris, three months at the Moulin Rouge with the Blackbirds. I can't tell you what it means to be back here again. Of course, you know I was here last year. And now here again. Well, I just can't believe it. And the audience has been so delightful. I'm very thankful for everything, really. Now, um, since I've been home this time, I feel as though I've missed an awful lot. And uh, when I get home again, get back to London, I'm going to think the whole situation over. I may come back. <laughs> Never know. I may come back. 
When you um, were in Blackbirds in 1952, I mean 28, 52 years ago, yes. uh, the star of the show was a guy named Bill Robinson. Tell us. Uh, With Bill Robinson, the 1928 Blackbirds. I sang, uh, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, Baby, Must Have That Man, and Digga Digga Do. They were my uh, outstanding numbers then. And uh, uh, what else did I sing in that number? Did I sing? Let me see. No, they were the four numbers that I had then. Well, what can I say about it? That I just loved the review. I had the opportunity, opportunity to dance with Bill, Bill Robertson. And I think with Peg Lake Bates in that review, I can't remember. Peg Lake Bates and the... Oh, well, he was all right, really. Bill had a temper. But uh, to know the man, you know, he wasn't too bad, really. <laughs> he had a very bad temper, but... Uh, he was always very kind to me, you know. He was all right, really. And I shall never forget our opening in uh, London at the Moulin Rouge. Mm, we had a wonderful time. I don't know what to say about it, but it was all so very beautiful. And we stayed on Broadway at the... What theatre was it? Uh, what was the number? What was the name of the theatre now? I can't remember. You know, I'm terrible for dates and names. I'm more concerned with impressions of your feelings. I don't care about the facts. No, the no. facts are not important. No. Why don't you talk about just your feelings about certain things? You know, well, did you feel, for instance, when you went to London and you made up your mind to stay there, mm -hmm. uh, why did you want What was your impression of London as opposed to coming from America? Oh. Well... You see, after I arrived in America in 1938, I was very, in, in London rather, I was very, I was one of the fortunate ones to have, have the BBC to call me, to start me off with, the, with a lot of radio work. That was the first thing. And that all happened because I happened to go into uh, a club where uh, Joe Loss was playing, rehearsing, and uh, he introduced me over there. And the following morning, I had a contract for the BBC. And I was doing so very well on BBC that I thought, well, I must stay here for a while. And then I went on and on. And the year after, I had a long contract for uh, various theatres there. And I went from one theatre to the other. And then we opened a place called the Florida Club, where uh, all the, it was a sort of a, an invitation club. I mean, uh, in uh, Bruton News, and I had the uh, opportunity of meeting all the lovely, outstanding people there. And from one thing to another, found myself staying there. there, well, there wasn't any... I'm awfully warm yeah, today. Very hot. Thank you very much. Mmm. No. Mmm. Thank you very much. There wasn't, uh, your decision to stay in, in England had, had no racial concern. In other words, it wasn't your concern about coming home. Uh, uh, you would be, there was a freer life in, in England than it was in America. Was that in your thinking at all? Oh, no. No, nothing, nothing racial. No, nothing racially. No, 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 nothing like that at all. My husband was British. I met him here, 
and he wanted he felt that uh, he wanted to go back to uh, to London and of course I followed my husband and I stayed on there and that was that there was no particular reason at all I missed my home America very much but after you stay a place two or three years you know you become accustomed and uh, I do like London very much I like it because it's quiet and I like the quiet life. I'm sort of an old-fashioned girl, I guess. The Ellington situation, you, you built such an international reputation. Thank you. I'll wait. Thank you. You built such an international reputation uh, with Creole Love Corp. Oh, yes. Tell us a story about that Oh, well, we were on the circuit on the art show. When I first sang Creole Love Corp. When I first sang Creole Love Corp. We were on the RKO circuit, and uh, Duke was playing, was opening the, the the second half. I closed the first half, and uh, I came downstairs to listen to uh, Duke's performance. And of course, when he came to this lovely melody of Creole Love Call, I started humming in the wings. This is sort of a counter melody. And uh, Duke came over to the side, to my side, and uh, he was uh, still directing the orchestra. And he said, "That lady he said, hum that just one more time." He said, because he thinks he says, "I think we're going to record that tomorrow." I said, "You can't record it because I don't know what I was doing." I said, "So you can't." He says, "Oh yes, wait." So he started again, and I started this sort of counter melody, and he said, "That's." just what I wanted. He says, we're going to record that tomorrow morning. And that's how it was born. As simple as that. Just before that, because it was, it was a time that I was traveling with two pianists. I always had two pianists, you see. And of course... Oh, yes, it was a time that... uh, at this particular time when I was on RKO circuit, I always traveled with two pianos, as you see. And uh, I was fortunate enough to find my husband found Art Tatum playing in Cleveland in a small cabaret somewhere. And he went over after him and asked him if he wanted to travel with his wife. And he said, well, I've never had that to do. He said, but I'd like the idea. He said, so he came over. So I had Art Tatum with me. So I introduced we introduced Art Tatum. He had never been out of Cleveland before. And they just loved him. And he stayed with me about a month and a half. And then someone offered him many more dollars. What <laughs> were you paying him? <laughs> I can't remember. It wasn't so much considering, you know, what they pay today. But uh, he was a beautiful accompanist. Beautiful accompanist. And I was sorry to, leave him, to, to lose him. And I had a Joe Turner and Francis Carter at another time. Joe Turner works in Paris now? Yes, that's right. He's still there. Or Switzerland, I think. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Thank All right. you very much. And uh, that was uh, Ed Hall, uh, one of the uh, legendary uh, women, African-American uh, entertainers, uh, performers uh, from the United States, 
during the early decades of the 20th century, and of course relocated in 1938 in Britain. Let's listen to some more of this interview uh, with Adelaide Hall. New York in the 1920s. It was a city teeming with life. Some had lived here for generations, but there were many newcomers, recent immigrants from the rural south and the islands of the Caribbean. For some, New York was America's first city, and that uptown community called Harlem was the heart of black America. People who came to New York carried with them their hopes, their fears, their anger. It was the period they called the Jazz Age. The Harlem Renaissance, with its literature, graphic arts, theater, and vaudeville, was alive and well. But the liveliest form of cultural expression emerged in the music called jazz. Jazz had the unique capacity for voicing the joys and expectations and reflecting the pride and the pain of the black experience in America. And more than any other city, New York in the 1920s was the citadel of jazz. So it was only natural that many ambitious young black musicians, Edward Kennedy Ellington among them, would take up the challenge of the big city. The music scene in New York was very strongly dominated by the piano players. Great piano players. James P. Johnson, Willie the Lion Smith. Count Basie was one of the great piano players. There were millions of them, all great. And uh, a little terrifying, but I'm lucky. Everybody liked me. And uh, so... I had no problems. And you took part in piano battles, I understand. Oh, yes, of course. Sure. I did that before I left Washington. But when I got to New York and I took the slicker way out, I would be the one to start them. Like to be in Mexico's one night, and I would sit down and, first of all, buy everybody a drink and sit down and play something and say, Pats. Maybe it's, uh, well, you know, Pats would pick up there, and then Pats would get there, and then he'd say, hey, James, and then James would come over, and then this would irritate the lion, and the lion would stand up and say, get up, I'll show you how it's supposed to go. And then it would, uh, something really happened then. I played ten different courses without stopping. So Duke, sit down, I'll get back to my story. I won't let you off. I'll, I'll, I'll stay on that one subject. So anyhow, they had a publishing place in New York then by the name of Irvin Mills, who you know recently was associated with Duke, you boys. Mills, uh, Irvin and, and his brother and all the sons and daughters, make the long story short, they wanted a band leader, and they had the Blue Ribbon Band, all types of bands. Lucky Melinda, you name them, and they had them. I took one look at the guy, and I talked to the man one day. I said, look, I said, there's a young chap in here, a handsome guy, tall. I said, above all, he can, he can improvise and memorize. So they put Duke in front of the band. I don't have to tell you what happened ever since. And now we come to one who seems to be set entirely apart from all other composers and musicians. When I first heard him, he was conducting a little five-piece orchestra up in Harlem. Today, he is acclaimed by music authorities both here and abroad as the creator of a new vogue in music, Duke Ellington. But Ellington was a very shrewd businessman. He had um, a great apprenticeship with a man by the name of Irving Mills, 
who was probably one of the shrewdest businessmen in music publishing business that ever existed. Uh, he uh, built an empire, and of course, and they became partners in a thing called Mills Ellington Publishing Firm. Irving Mills encouraged Ellington to record his own compositions and arrangements. According to Ellington, his success in breaking down racial barriers in the recording and entertainment industries came as a result of his association with Mills. And it was Mills who was responsible for getting the Duke Ellington Orchestra its engagement at the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club. The name itself was a reflection of the exotic stereotypes that white society had created during the 1920s about black people. Situated in the heart of Harlem, the club featured the music and performances of black artists. But the Cotton Club had a policy of whites only. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our famous Cotton Club. And if you can spare a minute from your merrymaking, I'd like to have the pleasure of introducing the greatest living master of jungle music, the rip-roaring harmony hound, none other than Duke Ellington. Take your bow, Dukey. As band leader, Ellington had to design many of his musical arrangements to back the Cotton Club production numbers. Nevertheless, Ellington was able to generate a unique style for big band orchestration and compositions, which would profoundly influence the future of jazz. Under the heading of jungle music, Ellington introduced such timeless compositions as East St. Louis Toodaloo, The Mooch, Mood Indigo, Black and Tan Fantasy, and the first wordless jazz vocal, Creole Love Call. started playing all these beautiful tunes. Well, when it came to Creole Love Call, the melody, I said, oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Lovely. And I started humming, you see, this counter melody. And uh, he said, oh, Addy, he said, that's what I've been looking for. He said, that's just what I want for this number. I said, what? He says, what you've been doing there? What you've been humming? I said, oh, I said, I've been doing that sort of live, but I don't know how to. I wouldn't know how to go over that again. He said, but yes, you could do it. He says, try it. He says, I'll start it again from the beginning, the chorus, and see if you can do it. I said, well, I'll try. And with that, he went out and stood in front of the orchestra and started again. And I started this humming. And at the end of this chorus, he came over and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to record that in a few days. I said, I don't see how we can do this. It's because I don't know what I was doing. He said, leave it to me. And that's how it started. Two things were happening at that time. First of all, it uh, was at the uh, real uh, launching, not the launching, but when it was really catching, when radio was first catching on. And we had a transcontinental while the Cotton Club, we were broadcasting almost every night across the country. From the Cotton Club, that's the thing that made everything, uh, well, made people stop and think. Now, we're downtown, you know, 
we're downtown where they, we have the most beautiful clubs, nightclubs and excitement. What is all of this doing? What is this going, what is this going on at the Cotton Club up in Harlem? And at the same time, uh, all the other big bands in the world were imitating Paul Whiteman and playing big, grandiose fanfares and all that sort of thing. And we had a very plaintive style, and it sort of broke through. And I think the Cotton Club really helped the, the profession and started people, you know, understanding that there was plenty of talent in Harlem. And I think... And welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, tribute to Adelaide Hall and her collaboration uh, with uh, Duke Ellington. And uh, we're going to be closing out uh, with the music of Lil Green. And this has been the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off. And have a beautiful week.
whether it has left behind. Just let them dance.
took you in, babe, right off the block. You was beat and raggedy as a mop. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done? You going to be sorry you treated me this way. You gonna warn me, babe, I'll be far away. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I Can you? 
What you 